Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. For decades, there were cities and towns that were all white for on purpose. These communities are known as sundown towns. At the peak of the exclusionary practice in 1970, an estimated 10,000 communities across the U.S. kept out African Americans by force, law, or custom. Many sundown suburbs also excluded Jewish and Chinese Americans and other minority groups. Because this practice was both formal and informal, researchers put together a database of these laws, customs, and first-hand accounts. There are 40 towns listed as possible past sundown towns here in Connecticut. Coming up, we'll hear how this practice extended into housing policy. But first, here to discuss this database and what it can tell us is Dr. Stephen Berry. He's an assistant professor of American culture and history at the University of Michigan. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And for our listeners, do you have a memory of a sundown town where we live? You can contribute to the database or join the conversation. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we'll be talking a lot this hour about the late James or Jim Lowen. He was a sociologist and the author of Lies My Teacher Told Me. The New York Times described him in his obituary in 2021 as a civil rights champion who took high school teachers and textbook publishers to task for distorting American history. So, Stephen, I want to start this conversation first by asking, you know, when did Jim begin to document sundown towns? Yeah, that's a great question. And in part because uh, it, it is a relatively unknown practice, especially including among historians. And uh, Jim, after he published uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, which is a best-selling book, um, was thinking about his experiences growing up in central Illinois. And he knew that there were some towns around where he grew up in Decatur, Illinois, that had excluded uh, some groups, and especially in this case, Black people from living in their towns. And it was that curiosity that led him to start looking in Illinois. And as he continued to look, he realized, oh, there are also uh, these towns in Indiana and Wisconsin, and was just essentially expanding out beyond that. And this is in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and, you know, the more he looked, the more he saw that these towns were all over the country, especially in the Midwest, the West, and the Northeast. And so I, I think it hits different always when when this is something that I feel like I've always known was a thing. But when you when you put a label on it, it, it feels a little different. And you've also taken over this really enormous database and, and public project. So how do you go about proving or disproving a sundown town? Yeah, I think that's right. Like the it 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 does mean something different when when we give something a label, when we can have a category for it. And 
you know, for example, uh, if, if I talk about segregation, people know what that means. They, they know that that's connected to some laws, to some particular customs, that it's connected to things like separate water fountains. And there is something important and powerful in being able to give a name to, to these practices. And in our case, in terms of the evidence, um, it's, it's challenging uh, in part because um, there are a lot of different ways in which uh, a place uh, became a sundown town or remained a sundown town. There are some cases similar to some of the segregation policies in which there were ordinances or laws passed in particular towns that said, officially, we're not going to allow particular groups to live in this town. Uh, but it was probably much more common for it not to come from an ordinance, but to come from other kinds of practices, informal practices uh, like policing issues in which police would follow somebody around or even pick them up and escort them to the uh, to the railroad station to send them out of town or even from individuals in the town to to be able to, to say to somebody, you're not welcome in this town, or even in cases where they uh, may even think they're being helpful to say, just so you know, you shouldn't be in this town, it's not safe for you, that ultimately ends up reinforcing uh, a place as a sundown town, a place that you have to be um, out of town by sundown. In other words, you can't live in this place. And in terms of our evidence, uh, we usually are often, our evidence often comes from people going to our website and submitting information to us saying, why don't you have this town on the list? I think you should include this town. And we'll do research that usually begins with census data in which we'll look uh, census by census, who's living in this town, looking at the racial categories. And that alone isn't enough to tell us if a place is a sundown town. For example, if we see uh, zero black people living in a particular town, it means that it's possibly a sundown town, but it also means that then we want to do more research. We want to find out why that's the case. Or um, what we'll also look for when we're looking at census data is, okay, if this, if if there is a decade in which a population drops dramatically, that's an indication that something might have happened during that decade. Uh, for example, in Greensburg, Indiana, uh, we know in the 1907 that there was uh, mob violence that drove out much of the black population. And you see that reflected in the census data. But if you just started with the census data, it would tell you something happened in that decade. And so once we get the census data, we go to um, all kinds of other uh, sources, written sources, newspaper accounts, um, other local history, documents from the period. Um, and, and then most often, because it's where we often practice that people don't talk about or document, we rely on oral history. And we'll go to people in that town, uh, talk to them about their memories of growing up in a place, uh, find out more information from stories handed down. We'll also go to nearby towns, because often it's a nearby town where People in that town know that, oh, yeah, we know that you should stay away from this town or when we were growing up, you should stay, stay away from this town. But uh, we know that in those oral histories, people have lots of stories about their own experiences, firsthand accounts. And so ultimately, we put those things together, the, the census data, uh, the primary sources from the period and the oral histories to, to then uh, make an assessment about whether or not a place is, was a sundown town. So I definitely want to talk more details about basically everything you just mentioned. Um, but 
I guess adding to sort of the oral history or the anecdotes is uh, when I first moved here late 2018, a friend and colleague had mentioned that there are certain communities here in Connecticut that did not really allow people of color to buy houses or even look at houses in certain communities. And so I wasn't super shocked to learn that the sundown town practice peaked in the 1970s, but it still hit, a, you know, it still hit a certain place in my brain that, that that's not very far away in terms of history from us today. And in some places it lasted even through the 90s. So can you talk about, you know, when did this practice begin based on your research? Yeah, absolutely. And it is the right question uh, because it is a historically specific practice that it's not just, oh, there always have been people who have engaged in certain practices, but we can connect it to a particular period. Um, and perhaps not surprisingly, it's in the late 19th century that we see this uh, practice emerging the same moment in which uh, we get um, the exclusion of Chinese people into the country the same period in which Jim Crow practices are emerging, especially in the South around segregation and new laws. And, you know, those things are happening um, in part because it is this post-emancipation period after the Civil War. And so in the 1870s, 1880s, increasingly Black people are migrating uh, around the country, making all sorts of gains uh, during the Reconstruction period. And some of those people are migrating out of the South into small towns. And one of the responses to that, whether it's Black populations or Chinese populations, one of the responses was to either drive out or keep out uh, some of these groups. And, you know, to take the example in the West in this period, uh, there were Chinese populations, Chinatowns in small towns across the West in the late 19th century. And most of those populations were driven out uh, and ended up in cities where it was relatively safe for people in larger numbers. So it starts in the 1870s, 1880s. Uh, it peaks in the 1970s, connected in part to the civil rights movement, to the Fair Housing Act, and various practices in place that 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 make it harder to to carry out these practices but we do know that it continues past the 1970s and continues into our present in some places so we know that towns are listed based on the strength of evidence collected especially with what you just mentioned too a mix of census data oral history and whatnots and so for example here in connecticut there are 40 reported sundown towns 10 of which are listed as probable. Can you touch on the range of source material you have in order to make that list? Yeah, um, it, it a lot of it does begin with census data. Um, and uh, But in, in taking the, the examples from Connecticut, uh, we draw, draw on a number of sources. One of the fascinating uh, documents that I think sheds light on, on how things are, uh, play out in Connecticut in this period is a 1961 survey commissioned by the uh, Connecticut Commission on Civil Rights. And they surveyed white populations and black populations on their attitudes toward racial integration. They asked them questions uh, whether or not they would were in favor of integrated public schools, integrated employment, churches, private schools, public housing. Uh, private residential neighborhoods, like a whole long list of things. And the, the options were in favor, um, acceptable, um, oppose, or don't know. And 
The uh, numbers from the survey for white attitudes toward integration in Connecticut in 1961 overwhelmingly were um, not in favor or, um, I'm sorry, were in favor of public schools um, by uh, 95% uh, in favor or acceptable to have integrated public schools. But when you get down to neighborhoods, uh, that number drops to 57% in favor or acceptable to those neighborhoods. And it's, it's a reminder of like the ways in which housing issues play out. So we start with information like that. And then we dig into newspapers, census data, uh, books that people have written about particular communities in Connecticut and, and oral histories. And so with a mix of that source material, you start with firsthand or even secondhand accounts along with with data do you know how many sundown towns you've documented in total? And what's your sense of how comprehensive that number is? And do you continue to sort of field e- emails or or talk to people and continue to gather that data? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've documented, I don't have the exact number, uh, but we've documented hundreds of towns around the country. I know that uh, Jim and his research... Um, had the sense that there were probably 10,000 of these towns. And so that tells you how many we don't have in the database that should probably be listed. And um, we we get emails every day, people going to the website, uh, lots of emails saying, why don't you have this town listed? Here's my experience, or here's what I know about this place. And, you know, I will get, um, I would say our database will get maybe 100 emails a week on a normal week. And then if something is in the news about sundown towns, we may get a thousand emails that week. And it, it's a reminder that people kind of, as you said earlier, uh, that like people kind of know about this. And when you put a name on it, they have all kinds of stories about related experiences. Right. And it's amazing to hear. That seems like a lot of engagement, I feel like, with with something like this and, and to hear that people still have sh- stories to share. I think it's both you know great and not great at the same time. Um, but are there any trends you observed in Connecticut specifically? Yeah, one of the things that um, we noticed, especially in Connecticut, I like so far, I like thinking nationally, I've talked a fair amount about the exclusion of black people. And we do see some of that in some of the Connecticut towns, but also especially prominent in Connecticut is the exclusion of Jewish populations, particularly in the 20th century, um, and especially in suburbs. And um, and that seems to be more pronounced in Connecticut than it is in um, other states. And there was mentioned an influence from the gentleman's agreement. Can we talk more about that reference for those who may not know what it means? Sure. Uh, The gentleman's agreement was a novel published in the mid 1940s, I think 1947, uh, that then became a film. And it focused on uh, Darien, Connecticut as a place that excluded uh, Jewish populations. And it's one of those I think cultural moments that brought a lot of attention to this practice that um, in some ways, I think, as we were talking earlier, it gave a name for something that was happening and uh, it's it, it shed light on that. It started with, it is a novel, so it is this fictional account, but it was also based on experiences that, uh, that, that show up in these places and that drew attention to it after that. It seems really interesting that that's very sort of specific to Connecticut. Have you seen other trends of religious exclusion that's unique to the state? 
Yeah, we have a couple of hints of evidence of potentially Roman Catholic populations being excluded. Uh, there was a possible reference to that in Portland, Connecticut, um, not 100% conclusive. And again, it is one of the challenges of this work is that we get lots of evidence in and lots of references. And it is putting those pieces together to try to figure out how much can we say conclusively or confidently. But there's there are some hints of not only of Jewish populations, but also of Catholic populations being excluded in some places. You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Berry at the University of Michigan. He oversees a massive database of sundown towns in the U.S., which is linked on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Glastonbury, Darianne, and Madison are all listed as probable past sundown towns. You can contribute to this database or join the conversation after a quick break. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're discussing the history of sundown towns in Connecticut and across the U.S., These were communities where, either through force, law, or custom, Black Americans and sometimes other racial and religious groups were excluded after dark. Joining us now to discuss some of her reporting on the subject is Logan Jaffe. She's a ProPublica reporter. Thank you so much, Logan, for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Kat. And still with us is Dr. Stephen Berry. He's an assistant professor of American culture and history at the University of Michigan. And a quick reminder for our listeners that this is a practice that peaked in the 1970s. Do you have a memory of a sundown town in Connecticut? Let us know, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Logan, you've covered sundown towns in Illinois, where this research project uh, basically began. And there's one town in particular that you focus. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So the town is called Anna, Illinois, and it is located in southern Illinois. Um, I'd say about 35 miles from the state southern border. It sits between 
Um, two towns that are a bit more populated, Anna has uh, about you know 4,000 people in it. And according to the 2010 census, about 95.7% of its population are white. And as ProPublica often does, you publish partner pieces working to engage the public on this particular issue. And one, one story from you was headlined, It's time for sundown towns to become a more visible part of Illinois history. But how? So what did you learn from that process, you know, inviting readers to discuss their community's history of racial exclusion? Yeah, I, you know, and this is something that, you know, Dr. Lowen was really adamant about as he was doing his own research into sundown towns. You know, like Dr. Barry mentioned, um, Dr. Lowen was from Decatur, Illinois, so not too far away from Anna. And I should mention that Dr. Lowen wrote about Anna in his own book, Sundown Towns, which is how I ended up in Anna because I was following up on this. Right. Um, and, you know, the aspect of community engagement was key to Dr. Lowen's work. So I wanted to be sure to also mirror that in the work that that I did. And, you know, what really surprised me is how willing so many people were to really talk about difficult history. Uh, you know, at first when I was reporting in Anna, I was nervous myself. You know, I'm white and I'm in a mostly white place. So, you know, I guess on paper, I should feel maybe less nervous um, than a person of color might. And I, you know, I, I would go around town. And I'd hang out outside of the Walmart. I would go to community events. I'd go to town meetings. And I would kind of ask people, you know, like, have you heard about you know, this legend surrounding the town name. Um, I should have said this earlier, but the legend no. of, of Anna is that the town stands for ain't no N-words allowed. And this lore is very pervasive. But the more I would ask people, the more the harder it was for me to find somebody who had not heard it. And this was, you know, in, uh, in 2019, 2018, as I was doing this. Wow. And did that you know, what else surprised you in this process? You know, we were just talking about earlier, too. I feel like a lot of people are you know, aware that this exists. But when you put a label on it, it it's a it, it becomes a different thing. So was, was there anything else that surprised you about the process, especially this was published just before 2020? So it's not very long ago. Right. It's not very long ago. And, you know, what interested me and what very much surprised me about Anna and and just to kind of see see the, these dynamics in practice is how a community you know Anna is a pretty small town it's pretty tight knit there are a lot of people who live there whose ancestors were some of the founding members of this of this community right so there is a lore in Anna um, of it being a sundown town whether or not you know many people who lived there uh, knew that exact phrase or not but there was this sort of um, I guess cognitive like dissonance I, I noticed of people really being proud of their history, but also being very feeling very sure that their community had moved past the um, the sort of in your face levels of racism that being a sundown town in the past <laughs> and these you know very these more violent methods of exclusion and expulsion of black people in Anna. Um, um, went about. So there was an interest and a pride in local history, but there was also a sort of um, underlying current of, we don't talk about that, we're past that part of our history. Anna isn't like that anymore. So one of the main questions I was trying to answer was, 
you know, I would ask people, well, what do you mean? What was, what was it like? How do you know it's, it's different now than it was then? And that's sort of where my, where my reporting took me. And how were the reactions or how has the reactions been when you asked that question? It's, it, it was varied, you know, um, you know, I, at the beginning when I started reporting, I, uh, one of the things I did is I, you know, I went to the local library I looked in their local history section. There was hardly anything about, uh, you know, the history, any sort of history of, of race in the community because it's sort of a default lens that this community is, is almost entirely white and we don't need to talk about race because, you know, as one person, I'll never forget one person said, we don't have a racial problem because, because there's, there's no black people here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, which is a terror, you, you know, I think that tells you a lot of, of what you need to know. But, mm -hmm. you know, since this story came out, there have been signs of change in Anna. Um, in the summer of 2020, a, a group of young organizers from surrounding towns decided to, um, protest against police brutality and in support of Black Lives. And this was the first Black Lives Matter protest that ever happened in Anna. And it was a defining moment, I think, in that town, especially for younger people and younger people of, cover, of color in surrounding communities who can have something visible to point to that we don't want Anna to stand for this anymore. And we want it to change. Right. And Stephen, I want to bring you to this conversation, too, is with what Logan just shared, you know, how does this kind of reporting forward your own research? Yeah, I absolutely. It's I think exactly what Logan is saying is that we want people to come to our research and not only to think, OK, this is something historical and we'll leave it in the past, but we want people to come to it and and think not only like it is important to know this past. It's important to to tell the truth about the past and to to understand that these are things that have happened. But we also want people from that point to pivot forward and say, so what kind of community do we want to be? If this is mm -hmm. what the past is, how do we respond to that? And that's what I hear a lot. And I in in Logan's report and reporting, like one of the things I think is so fascinating about this the story is is following like how people's interactions are in this town. And especially as you hear people talking about this history and thinking about what it means for the present and future. And a quick reminder to our listeners that you can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now on the line with us is Paul Sylvester. He's a volunteer researcher with the Hamden Historical Society. Thanks, Paul, for joining us today. Uh, yes, happy to be here. So, Paul, you've been on the program before to talk about a very specific line that you found in the deed of your parents' house. Can you tell us about your discovery? Yes, uh, I'll, I'll read the, uh, the specific uh, clause I verbatim here. It says, no persons of any race other than the white race shall use or occupy any building on any lot except that this covenant shall not prevent the occupancy by domestic servants of a different race domiciled with an owner or tenant. Uh, so I think what's interesting is that it prohibited not only uh, anyone other than white people from buying or renting a house, but even for being a guest of, uh, of someone in the house there. So I think that really uh, pointed out to, in a sense, being a sundown uh, neighborhood. 
Right. And, and, also, and you know, not like to be there. Right. And, and Paul, this isn't something that the Historical Society has set out to document, but have you come across any other deeds with similar stipulations? Uh, I, I, I know that uh, other houses in the neighborhood have, uh, have had the same uh, restriction. I mean, this, this paragraph was in, uh, was in all the uh, uh, probably 100 or so uh, houses in this specific development. And I suspect elsewhere, too, if uh, you know there were uh, the redlining maps made, and uh, to get that highest uh, A grade on, on the uh, redlining map, they had to have that restriction in, in place. And there were many uh, several other neighbors in hand and had this had, had that A grade. So I'm sure it was pervasive. And and Paul, with that experience too, and with you finding that line in the deed to your own parents' home, you know what was going through your mind when you first came across it? Do you remember? Yeah, it's just, uh, well, how it, uh, per- it persists today in the neighborhood. Uh, this is a neighborhood called Spring Glen that uh, to this date has the uh, lowest uh, percentage of non-white uh, people as of the 2020 census. Uh, the, the one census tract uh, in, in Calvary and Spring Glen had only a 19% uh, non-white population. And you can contrast that to uh, the uh, another neighbor in Hamden, Highwood, had 86%. So it's not that that Hamden is overall uh, not integrated, but this the uh, effects of these uh, racial covenants put in place about 50 years ago still per- persist today. And Paul, Hamden is currently not on the list of the 40 towns on the Sundown Town database. Do you have any plans to look into this more? Uh, yeah, I, I would suspect that because it, because overall, if you're considering the town overall, there there were quite a few black people, and and you know, back back into the early 20th century, there were uh, one neighborhood near New Haven uh, has uh, had always had a significant black population. So I, perhaps if they're not going to the neighborhood level, and it would not be a uh, and would not qualify as, as a sundown town. Indeed, I, I think uh, around this this year, if the recent demographic trends continue, around this, this year, Ham would be a majority uh, non-white or non uh, either non-white or Hispanic Latino population in Ham now. Well, Paul Sylvester, thank you so much for your time and for taking the time and calling us today. Thank you, Paul. Okay. And Stephen, you've been listening to what Paul was saying. You know, is this the type of experience that you would see or hear from the people that you speak with? Yes, definitely. And I just wanted to add, I'm really glad that Paul brought this up, that that what he's describing is a restrictive covenant. And those restrictive covenants were really common across the country. Uh, They were deemed unconstitutional in the 1948 Shelley v. Kramer decision. Um, but they are still very much in those contracts. And I suspect that a lot of people listening, if you live in a house that uh, was built in, you know, before the 1940s, uh, there's a really good chance that that's also, you, you'll see some of that language in your um, housing contract. And it was a really common practice. And the other thing I would add to that is that even after 1948, uh, we know that that. If it, even though this was unconstitutional, that informally 
this practice continued in which people were excluded from particular neighborhoods and that real estate agents in particular could play a really important role in maintaining exclusivity by um, you know, sending people to other neighborhoods, not showing them particular houses. And so even getting rid of, of a formal practice uh, still left open lots of informal practices. And we have another caller on the air, Christy from Marlboro. You're on. Um, hi. Hi, go for it. Okay, so my name is Christy Wrench Moraga, and I grew up in Glastonbury. I live in Marlboro now. And I remember um, at the end of the 1960s or the beginning of the 1970s that there was a, a black family that wanted to come to town because the father was a math teacher and the real estate agent um, would not take them around. So my mother, who was a pediatrician in town, did take them around and helped the family find a home. Um, and my mother also had the idea that she did not want her children to grow up selfish in Glastonbury. So she convinced my father, who was also a doctor, and they took the five children and we went to Chad, Africa for a year in the Peace Corps. But at that time, since my father was the director, my mother was not allowed to be in the Peace Corps. So she went um, to the hospital, the pediatric hospital every day, just um, like to, to volunteer. Well, Christy, mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for taking the time and calling us. Stephen, what's your response uh, in terms of Glastonbury was a probable uh, sundown town, according to the database? Yeah, I appreciate hearing that story. Uh, it's it's not evidence that we have in our database. We have evidence of other people talking, sharing similar kinds of stories. And so I, I hope that caller will reach out to us because uh, we're heavily dependent on volunteers and people who know things to share information with us uh, that we can then follow up on. And I will say that the other things that we have on Glastonbury in the same period is evidence of a local group who was uh, organizing to try to keep black populations out in the 1960s, 1970s. And we also do have some of those stories of people, black people being threatened uh, when they were trying to buy a home there. And we also have another question. Katie from Bloomfield had called in earlier to ask if hospitals or healthcare has been studied in sundown towns. Uh, this is something that comes up in her nursing practice. Uh, Stephen, is this something that you can respond to? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, and I, I think the question, at least as I understand the question, is like, like what are the implications of sundown towns? Like, do, do we see like results of that showing up in other arenas in terms of things like, does that impact healthcare? And um, the short answer is that um, I, we haven't studied specifically hospitals, but we know that lots of sundown towns or former sundown towns have what Jim would refer to as second generation uh, sundown town issues, uh, like a, that a place that was the sundown town, we often see in subsequent generations, a legacy of discriminatory practices, of racial disparities, including in things like healthcare, uh, policing issues, and, and all sorts of other issues around race relations in these places. And I think that's what that question is getting at. And I suspect that if we did a study like that, we would, we would see a legacy in those places. 
And yeah, I have I have something real quick to add to that. Yeah, it's such an it. interesting question, and thank you, you know, for for this question, Katie. So in Anna, there was another dimension of healthcare, and and you know, it's it's its status as a sundown town, which is Anna is home or was home to a a state hospital, a state mental health facility in Illinois. It was run by the state, and one thing that I came across in my research is that you know, the population of residents and patients at this healthcare facility were, it was more likely for those people to be um, people who were not white because of this state institution. And those were part of the town counted in some ways as part of the town population. And so that's another aspect of this. If there are, you know, residential healthcare facilities, um, if they're run by a state agency, or even um, then, you know, that could contribute to a little bit, uh, like a, a bit of a specific population. You've been listening to ProPublica reporter Logan Jaffe and Dr. Stephen Berry from University of Michigan will be sticking around. For our listeners, you can contribute to this database of sundown towns in Connecticut. Find more information on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live, or you can join the conversation 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're discussing the history of sundown towns where we live. And back with us to talk about it is Dr. Stephen Barry. He's an assistant professor of American culture and history at the University of Michigan, and Logan Jaffe, who is a reporter with ProPublica. So we've discussed how this practice was often enforced under wraps. Uh, James Lowen tried hard to get a photo of a typical sundown town sign, but was unsuccessful. But let's listen to him talking about the important role local historical societies can play in documenting these histories. Most sundown towns never even had a sign. In West Frankfurt, I said to the librarian, well, who was also the head of the historical society, I said, well, do you have the sign or do you have a photo of it? And, and she replied, no, no, why did we keep that? Well, if you're the historical society, that is, of course, one of the more important aspects of the town's history. And here you have a memento of it. You have an actual sign or you have an actual photo of it. That's why you would keep that. But many, many historical societies in small towns and even in larger cities uh, really only want to talk about the good things that happened in the town. And they don't want to dwell on the fact that the town was for decades, including when I was there uh, 10 years ago, was a sundown town. Logan, I want to ask, what are your thoughts about what Jim has to say here? You knew him very well from your research. Yeah, it's so great to hear that clip. Um, and I was, as he, as I was listening to it, I was thinking about my experience going to the Union County History Museum, which is um, just north of Anna in another town called Cobden. And, you know, I went there to learn more about how, about the history of Anna, you know, in Union County, Illinois. And I was also going there to learn about how that community told the story 
of itself in this, you know, historical society slash museum setting. And, you know, I went through the historical society. There is a lot of, a lot of mementos, just things that people had donated, um, old photographs, um, old, you know, things from people's homes. When I asked the person who runs the historical society about whether he gets any questions about the legend of ANNA, he looked at me and he said, you know, we get them from outsiders <laughs> like you. Uh, and to me, that that said everything. And he mm-hmm. was willing to sit down and talk with me about it. And I learned a lot about, you know, the history of Union County in the Civil War. And, you know, but but yeah, it, it, it rings very true to what Dr. Lewin was expressing in that tape is that, you know, a local community is interested in telling, is often interested, I should say, in telling a celebratory history of, of itself. I think that that's beginning to change. And I think that, you know, there's a plenty of evidence of, of towns really confronting their history. And I'm encouraged to see that sort of work happening in different places. And uh, Stephen, especially with what Logan just shared and, and the clip we just heard from from James Lowen, can you touch on why it was so unique in the way he framed history? Because he really wasn't afraid to qualify something as racist or even something as BS. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with Logan that it's, it's always nice to hear clips of Jim's voice. He was so passionate about this research. Um, and and I, I think like part of what Jim is uh, is referencing there is like he's talking about troubling pasts. And we know that like that's or what some historians refer to as hard history. And we know that those things are challenging to grapple with that as Jim was saying, like people want to focus on like these, they want to celebrate particular things about their past and which is understandable. Um, and at the same time, like getting at these paths that uh, being able to tell the truth about the past, being able to get the history right is really important for who we are in the present, that, that these things don't just go away, that there are legacies of these things in the present and, and that they will persist um, until we grapple with them. And one of the things we really push uh, places to do is to both to document this past, but also to think about, well, so what do we do with this hard history now that we know it? And we also have another caller, Aram, for New Britain. You're on the air, Aram. Yes. Hello, Catherine. Uh, long time no see. Nice to hear from you. <laughs> yes. Uh, I want to first uh, acknowledge uh, Dr. Lowen uh, because uh, we invited him. I'm a retired professor at Central Connecticut State University, and we invited him at least two twice uh, to Connecticut to uh, speak about uh, sundown uh, towns. Uh, but I wanted to bring up the, the point, of course, about zoning, that uh, the zoning regulations in many towns and cities in uh, Connecticut are still exclusionary, and despite a legislation, a, they still allow locals to exclude uh, multifamily housing and so on. So Darien, among others, keep, keep, is still mostly white, and mostly Christians, you know, uh, so not much has changed in Connecticut. Well, thank you so much, Aram, for uh, calling in and letting us know your thoughts. Uh, Steve, I want to ask a response in terms of policy. I know we wanted to get a little bit about housing earlier. So can you talk about whether or not what Aram said is surprising to you or no? 
I, it's not surprising. I'm actually glad you mentioned that because it's something we haven't talked about much is uh, like the zoning practices are another way in which places can can be exclusionary. And this is especially a common practice post-World War II as um, suburbs are emerging across the country, that those zoning practices are connected to the emergence of suburbs, to uh, places like, for example, the various Levitt towns. And those early Levitt towns um, had those restrictive covenants that said you couldn't sell to particular groups of people, but also alongside of that, uh, zoning practices that would similarly maintain an exclusive place. And it's especially common in these post-World War II suburbs. And Stephen, looking forward, you know, what can sundown towns do to address this history and its effects? You know, what does what do those conversations look like? Yeah, that's. I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, we like to work with communities as much as we're interested in documenting this past. We're also invested in thinking about. So now, what do you do? How do you respond to this history? And uh, Jeb used to talk about this uh, in a three step process of getting places first to acknowledge the past to say, this is what we did, uh, and then an official apology for that past. Uh, but then the third step, and I think the, the the most challenging one is like, so looking to the future, how do you work to become a place that isn't exclusionary, that is a welcoming place where anyone will feel welcome to live there? And often that means thinking about things like um, investments in like financial investments in terms of hiring initiatives in terms of things like zoning practices. And uh, we've worked with a few communities, uh, especially recently, there are communities who have have walked through those three steps and, and started to think about, well, what does the future look like? And that's really what ultimately we want people to do is to think about what does the future look like in their town? And so Jim has been quoted saying that there's a big difference between not wanting to be a sundown sundown town and not wanting to be seen as a sundown town. We want to end with one more quick from James Lowen. I I want to make this comment. Nobody is just a racist. Uh, And let me give you an example. Um, Calhoun County, Illinois. Not too far from Anna, it's in central Illinois, it's just north of St. Louis, Missouri, actually. The whole county, the last time I was there, was a sundown county. Not one black family lived in that county. Um, well, there was one interracial couple. Uh, I was there about when President Obama took office, and that county had voted for Obama by 52% to 47%. Now, that's an all white county. You've got to remember, white people in America did not vote for Obama. They voted for McCain. The only reason Obama won was because black people voted for Obama overwhelmingly and Latino and Asian American people voted for Obama substantially. So um, that was an unracist act to vote for Obama. Now that's a contradiction. And so the same person can be racist given one frame of rhetoric or in one situation and unracist in another. And we have to realize that and appeal to their unracist side. So we only have a couple minutes left here, but Stephen, want to ask, what's your response and final thoughts to what Jim had to say there? 
Yeah, I, I will say really quickly that it's a reminder that this, uh, regardless of the politics of a place, like this practice transcends it in the same way that like segregation practices transcend politics. And I will make one final plug too to people who have information that I hope they'll go to our website and share that information with us. We're always looking for volunteers to help us do this research. And we will have the information as well at cdpublic.org slash where we live. Logan, we've got about a minute left here, but we'd love to ask, you know, what are your final thoughts with everything that we talked about today? Um, my final thoughts are, you know, in the past couple years, uh, you know, with the Sun Downtown Lab at the University of Michigan and the work that Dr. Barry is doing, there's been so much attention and sort of a resurgence about researching sundown towns and people understanding what that term means. And I'd encourage people who know something about their community to interview people in your community to talk about it. Uh, you know, if anything, from my experience, people are interested and willing to discuss difficult history if you come from a place of genuine curiosity and understanding. And I'd encourage people to check out the Sundown Towns uh, database and to collect stories and do research. ProPublica reporter Logan Jaffe, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And also Dr. Stephen Berry from the University of Michigan, thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And also a quick shout out for our listeners. Thank you all for calling and making this a much richer conversation. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.